Quick note, I've decided to change the naming convention of Reductio episodes going forward. Instead of having a hard distinction between monads and episodes, and instead of arranging episodes seasonally, I think it makes the most sense for now to go with a naming convention that is continuous and doesn't make a sharp distinction between monads and or, or the less highly produced episodes and fully produced like sort of cinematic and narrative episodes. The truth is that I'll be unlikely to have time for many full production projects for a while. And so most of what I'll be producing in the next few years will be the sort of monad category. So without further ado, here's episode 29, which doesn't include the audio Sophias, which are sort of their own thing, sort of audio books, but for academic articles. Okay, so housekeeping out of the way, here is Quill Kukla on City Living. Welcome to Reductio Adventures and Ideas. I'm your host, Andrew Lavin. Reductio is a show about philosophy, about ideas, and about understanding ourselves and our world more clearly. Brought to you by Inverted Spectrum Media. Hi, I'm Quill Kukla. I'm a professor of philosophy at Georgetown University, where I'm also a senior research scholar in the Kennedy Institute of Ethics. And for this upcoming year, I'm actually a humble research scholar at Hanover University in Germany. I chatted with Quill Kukla a long time back, so their research fellowship in Germany is now over. It's taken me an embarrassingly long time to edit and publish this interview. You know, having a child and then a full-time job and a full-time job search and then owning a house and all the fun projects that come along with that. So, I, you know, excuses, excuses. I just, it's taken me a while. But I got to it finally. But the issues that are raised in uh, this this book and in this interview are are no less urgent and important today. One of the joys of philosophy is that it has a sort of timeless nature to it and that many of the issues that arise and many of the questions it asks are not tied to a particular time in history, let alone a particular year or week. A lot of philosophy stays fresh for a long time uh, for this reason, and, and so it makes just as much sense to buy Kukla's book today as it did a year ago. There's um, virtually no difference on that front. Um, this is very different from a, a field like artificial intelligence or, or a subfield of philosophy like AI ethics, where one needs to be up to date essentially every week at this point. And buying a book from 10 years ago, or even with AI like one year ago, might be a bad idea unless, unless you have a very clear sense on what's outdated and what isn't. So anyway, Kukla published a book called City Living, How Urban Spaces and Urban Dwellers Make One Another. I'll publish a link to in, in the show notes there so you can check that out. It's a super cool book with a lot of super cool thinking in it and also some in-depth insight into a couple of specific cities in particular. So um, what interested me about the book was actually rather personal. I found that the older I get, the more I just want to write about whatever fascinates me. And at a certain point, I realized that exploring cities, especially by foot and understanding what makes them tick and 
looking at the relationship between what kinds of people's people live in cities and the built environment that they live in and how those two are related to one another was really the main thing that I liked to do in my spare time. So I travel a lot. And when I travel, I mostly just walk and I mostly travel to cities and just walk those cities and try to learn them as spaces. Um, and uh, I more and more just get philosophically curious about things that fascinate me non-philosophically. And so the interest in this book developed out of that non-philosophical interest. Uh, what I try to do in the book um, can be described in general philosophical terms or in more concrete terms. In general philosophical terms, what I'm interested in is how spaces and subjects or agents literally make or constitute one another so that the kind of subjectivity you have, the way you perceive your values, the way you feel in your body, the way you operate as an agent are all thoroughly and inextricably bound up with the kinds of spaces that you navigate and how you exist in a material space. But then just as much, conversely, material spaces aren't just given. People are constantly creatively shaping them and retooling them and um, working on them to make them suit their needs. So the spaces come to reflect the subjectivity and agency of the people who live in them. So this mutually constitutive process where spaces make subjects and subjects make spaces was what philosophically got me fascinated. Um, there have been other people in philosophy who have talked about embodied and embedded subjectivity. Um, that's not a new idea in philosophy, but two things. One is um, they don't tend to focus that much on material space as what we're embedded in, or if they do, it's in a very abstract sense. Um, and secondly, when they do focus on space, I didn't feel like there was a lot of concrete empirical interesting or detail about the kinds of spaces that we are actually in and how those actually shape us. It was more like an abstract point about how, oh, well, we're embodied and bodies are in spaces. But it seemed to me that different kinds of spaces shape us in different ways. And people hadn't really drilled down within philosophy and gotten concrete about that. Um, so I got interested in particular in urban spaces, which are the spaces that I love and the ones that I care about and that fascinate me. And I started asking, well, what is special about urban space that creates certain kinds of subjectivity within it? And conversely, how do subjects produce urban spaces as distinctive kinds of spaces? And so I wanted to be more particular about um, space by, by focusing on the urban. And um, this might be a longer answer than you want, so you can edit this down if you want. But um, as I, just one more thing I'll say is that as I did this, I realized that if I was going to take seriously the idea that I wanted to pay attention to concrete empirical space, I needed to know actually really empirically how urban spaces um, evolve and come to be and so forth. So I ended up on the along the way as I wrote this book, I ended up going and doing a master's degree in urban geography at CUNY so that I could really be much more empirical about what I meant by saying that city spaces were creatively built by subjects and that they um, influenced the subjects who are within them. So in the end, the book is really a crossover philosophy geography book. And I, I wouldn't even know how to classify it as one, more one than the other. It's really equally both, which is one of the things that I 
think is quite distinctive about it and love about it. I'll stop there. Quill makes a claim worth clarifying here. Spaces are built by subjects and then in turn influence the subjects within them. First, when you hear the word subject here, you wouldn't be too far off to just think of these as people or persons. One reason to use subject here is that it makes claims universal to all subjective beings throughout the universe. We would expect similar claims about space to have some bearing on subjects even quite distinct from ourselves with our human subjective experience of the world. So I'm thinking of like the creature from Nod in Adrian Tchaikovsky's Children of Ruin and Children of Memory who are extremely different from us being like a cellular uh, hive mind, kind of like a, a fungus or a mold. But nevertheless, um, they would conform to this general claim that Kukla makes, that they, they make spaces and their spaces influence them in turn. If we think of a quote-unquote natural space as the default space we inhabit, scare quotes there because all spaces are made by one life form or another and almost certainly by countless life forms and interaction with one another. So it's maybe not natural. I don't know what natural is a weird word. Anyway, if we start on the savannah and imagine building a simple camp with some sleeping spots, a campfire, a cache of supplies, a waste sump, and so on, then we, with relatively little physical transformation of the space, have built a new sort of space, and that space will begin to organize our activities and politics within which we act and do things. Where the campfire is in camp and will be important to our daily activities and sense of hierarchy within the group, Similarly, where the waste sump is and where sleeping happens in relation to it will be a partially a conscious choice and partially something we do out of habit or instinct, but will in turn have a profound effect on where we want to sleep, what it means to have a particular sleeping space, and what one's status within the group would be should one be positioned closer or further to the waste pit or the like, right? You can see how one's subjective experience of the world around one will be influenced by the spaces one inhabits, even though you might have been the one to make those spaces to begin with. I want to say that you can't actually understand what it is to act or to have a um, set of things that are real to you. Um, that we are reasoning about and thinking about and having mental representations about unless you are planted in space and in a very particular space. Um, so space is constitutive of subjects and not just impacting subjects because what kind of space we're in is going to shape the kind of agency we have to start with. And it's not like there's some background neutral kind of agency that you could have outside any space whatsoever that then gets impacted by a space, right? The kind of agency we have, the way that we inhabit our body, the way that we perceive, um, the way that we uh, normatively value things is not just spatially um, shaped, but without any space at all, there wouldn't be those things to start with. And they're always going to be particularized to the space. So we want to say that in some sense, people create spaces and spaces create people. Though I'd initially be tempted to say that spaces don't literally create people. They just influence what sorts of agents and subjects they become, what sorts of actors and experiencers. 
Yeah. I mean, so yes, I agree. Although as you were talking, it occurred to me that spaces also literally make human beings. Like the way that humans come to be in hospitals, for example, when they're born is interestingly and importantly different from the way that they come to be in a home birthing situation. Um, space controls when and how we have sex and create humans in the first place. So even the generation of humans and not just the generation of agents is, is um, spatially shaped in various interesting ways. But basically, I take the point that you're making. Yeah, it's what kind of agent you are. It's not the fact that you're a homo sapien, which is being shaped by the space that you're in and constituted by the space that you're in. Yeah. One thing I think is interesting about living in a big city is the sort of anonymity you feel as you navigate the geography. So I grew up in a town of roughly 100,000 people, Chico, California, the, the town where I live now. We were a fairly well-networked family growing up, and so the, the likelihood of running into someone I know in a public space is quite high. With that in mind, I feel the, the sort of constant sense that I might embarrass myself if I did something a little odd or out of step in public space because someone I know or someone connected to people I know might be somewhere nearby. As a university instructor, this was sort of doubled and then I felt like a representative of the, of the university and like a professional no matter where I was in town and students are everywhere and especially early in the semester, you might not know all of your students by 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 sight, um, certainly not by name. And so you you feel a little bit under under the gaze, right? In Los Angeles or San Jose and so on, I, I didn't feel the same sense. I had the opposite sense, a sort of confidence that the vast, vast majority of people I encounter in an incursion throughout the city are people I will likely never see again. I can take for granted that very likely a colleague or student or friend or acquaintance is very likely not nearby. I found myself feeling pretty free to dance a little bit if I was um, listening to music on on my uh, through my earphones or um, standing at a bus stop, you know, maybe dance a little bit, mumble or mumble sing a few bars of a song I was listening to because I, I just didn't care about the impression I was making on the people around me as much as I now do in the, the smaller town that I live in. Yeah, I mean, it's that fascinating combination of anonymity and sociality is part of what um, fascinates me about cities, because, yes, you're anonymous in the sense that you can move through them without forging intimate relations. Um, but at the same time, you're constantly negotiating other people. And like you said, it's often the same other people. You get into patterns and routines that involve seeing the same people over and over again, but you're not caught up in an intimate relationship with them, but you're negotiating their bodies and their patterns and you have different routines for the different kinds of people that you see and different kinds of pe people that you have to um, interact with and move your body around in the most literal sense. So it's this deeply social existence and deeply anonymous existence at the same time, which is part of what fascinates me about it. So what are some themes that just arose for you in, in researching for and writing this book? What are a few that sort of stood out for you? So I guess a couple 
of examples come to mind. And if you want them to be more specific than this, let me know. Um, but one of the themes that I talk about in the book is the way that we need to have um, a wide variety of very, um, well, let me put it differently. We need to have a wide variety of skills that we can switch between very quickly on board in order to make our way through city space. Making your way through suburban space, I'm going to put aside rural space because rural space has its own complexities and it's a whole different kind of thing. But making your way through suburban space tends to involve just one kind of skill, usually driving your car, right? You, and, and usually the drive is fairly straightforward and, and uniform. As you move through city space, you typically have to not only bring a wide variety of skills on board, but you have to switch between them very quickly. So this includes things like um, knowing how to use your body to line up in a queue in order to get to the subway, to use the turnstiles for getting into the subway, um, to order something in a restaurant in a crowd, to... Um, uh, understand other people's accents from a wide variety of places because you're probably going to be interacting with people where you speak differently from one another, move differently from one another. You need to be able to quickly interpret a wide variety of accents. You need to be able to sort um, dangerous from safe situations very quickly in cities. Like, for example, you need to be able to tell the difference between somebody who is yelling and screaming because yelling and screaming is just what they do because of whatever to do with their own subjectivity versus somebody who's yelling and screaming because they're in trouble versus somebody who's yelling and screaming because they're an actual threat to you. And when you live in a city, you develop those skills to the point where they're quite automated and you you don't even really notice, like, you know, I've spent a lot of time in New York, you don't even notice that anybody's yelling or screaming in New York at a certain point. Um, so we move between these skills very quickly. And so if you're traversing just say like a couple of miles in a city, you're probably going to use a whole bunch of those different skills and the terrain is going to change very fast. Whereas moving through a suburban space tends to have a homogeneity to it such that a couple miles goes by like that. So, you know, a couple minutes go by in the car and you don't even notice anything's changed and now you're a couple of miles away. I've noticed that people in... Um, Suburbs will often refer to something that's five miles away as just down the street or around the corner because that space just disappears to them. Whereas for city livers, that space is very full of activity and the need for expertise and so forth. So that would be one example. Another example that I talk about a lot in the book that really fascinates me is how we perceive things as orderly or disorderly. There's been really interesting sociological research that shows that um, what we see as an example of order or disorder is not um, objectively picking up on some fact about the world, but is relative to the set of expectations that we have going into the situation as in, and is inflected by things like race and class and whether we perceive there being, you know, people of all races is depressing, but well, um, uh, uh, well-proven result that people of all races will tend to see a neighborhood that has brown and black bodies in it as less orderly than a neighborhood that has white bodies in it, even if when you code what's going on more carefully, there's not more 
things that you would write down as examples of disorder in the one that rather than in the other. I'm not sure if I said that wonderfully, but um, so how we see a scene as orderly or disorderly is going to be shaped by a complicated combination of our experiences, our expectations, our, our learning about what counts as dangerous and what counts as safe. And um, city livers will have different perceptions of orderliness and disorderliness than other people. And people, you know, this is going to vary not just whether you're a city liver or not, but which city you live in, which neighborhood you live in, and so forth. Um, and this is, in a way, a very powerful ability that we have. So we can very quickly notice something that's disorderly and standing out that needs to be coped with and ignore everything else, or we can very quickly parse a situation as orderly and not in need of intervention on our part. Um, so it can be a very useful skill, but it's also a skill that's riddled with all kinds of biases, as I mentioned. So it's not pure at all. Our perceptions of orderliness are infected by racism, by classism, um, by ableism, by fat phobia, and any number of other isms. Right? So um, one of the things I'm just fascinated by in the book is how these perceptions um, shape what we find um, acceptable or unacceptable in our environment, what we take as needing intervention or not needing intervention, and the ways that this can be a help to us or can actually recreate existing injustices and inequalities. So that, yeah, that would be a second example. So in the book, you end up focusing a lot on two cities, Berlin, Germany, and Johannesburg, South Africa. I'm, I'm curious why you ended up focusing on those two and what lessons you think we learned by doing a careful study of these two cities. I picked Berlin and Johannesburg specifically because I was interested for the purposes of the book in what I call repurposed cities, which were cities that had been built to support a very specific um, quite restrictive social and political and economic order and form of life. And then that order and form of life collapsed very suddenly. And all of a sudden there are new people living there, but they're in a material environment that was built for an earlier era. So they have to repurpose that material environment and shape it to their needs or find ways of using it. Right. So in the case of Berlin, you have the Cold War and the division of the city. In the case of Johannesburg, you had apartheid and different kinds of divisions of the city. Both of those orders collapsed at almost exactly the same time. And then you had these two cities that were built for these very, very specific, segregated, um, strategically divided forms of life. And all these new people in there trying to use that material environment in new ways. So if you go back to my initial description of what motivated the book, this mutual constitutive thesis, right? It seems to me that repurposed cities were going to be a really great place to see that because you were going to see this mismatch between the physical environment and the subjects in the environment that then had to had to accommodate one another, right? The space has to change to fit the new people and the new people have to change to fit the space. And I was interested in seeing how repurposed cities like really showed off that process of mutual constitution. So that's what I was really looking for when I was in the cities. So, I mean, in Berlin, part of what was fascinating to me and part of the reason that I love Berlin so much is that the relationship between people 
and space and the concept of ownership is very different. So many Berliners really resist the idea that living in or occupying a space should in any way be equated with owning that space or turning it into property. Um, and this, because there's this ethos of occupation and a resistance against the commodification of space and the turning it into property, um, Berlin became a huge squatting city when the wall came down and people took over all of these spaces that had been used for other things that were suddenly not needed for their original purpose and they occupied them. But by occupying them, they did not claim them as property. They did something distinctively different from that. And so part of what fascinated me writing the book is, well, what does it actually mean philosophically and in practice to occupy a space if it doesn't mean having a property deed, right? And so one of the things that you can really see on display in Berlin is the way that occupation is translated into things like territory claiming. Um, you see this through, you know, mar the marking of space through art and making it um, distinct from the rest of the city by using art to block it off as a space that is a certain kind of territory. You can see it through the way that people use their bodies in that space to claim that space as their own, to make themselves at home in it, to make some visitors feel at home in it and other visitors not feel at home in it. Um, But as soon as you get away from the logic of property, you get to see in all this rich detail what it is to treat a space as your territory, as home for you and the place that you belong. And one of the things that I just love about Berlin, it just has all these alternate kinds of homes, all these different ways that people make space not their own, but the place where they belong, right? A territory for them. Um, so that was super fascinating for me in um, Berlin. I found that in Johannesburg, almost the exact opposite was true. There was a legacy from apartheid where people who weren't white were literally not allowed to own property to, or to own businesses. And so when apartheid fell, it opened up a space for sort of a radical kind of hyper-capitalism and individualist hyper-capitalism. There was this huge valuation of the idea that now anybody could own land and anybody could own a business. And so um, the kind of ownership society or, owner or commodification society became this very, very heightened thing. And so what you see in Johannesburg instead is a lot of space claiming of a more um, capitalist sort. So one of the things that just fascinated me about Johannesburg is that like, people sell off all of the different bits of their homes in order to monetize them and turn them into property. So they will sell off the wall to let, let it be used as advertising space, for example, or they will sell off their backyard to allow a different family to live there, or they will sell off one window of their home in order to allow somebody to operate a spaza shop, which is like a little bodega out of the home. And so all of the space gets like monetized and capitalized and repurposed in this like incredibly um, ownership oriented, commodification oriented way. Um, you had a big squatting scene in Johannesburg too, but it was 
kind of the opposite of the squatting scene in Berlin. What you had was gangsters who came in and claimed abandoned buildings for their own and then started charging rents to immigrants who wanted to live in them and running them sort of on the black market. And so it was a very, very different kind of squatting culture that arose between the two countries. And it was super fascinating seeing the differences between the two. Um, I, I could go on forever about cool things about your Johannesburg and Berlin, and I'm happy to answer more questions. But that was one of the really interesting sort of on the ground lived contrasts that you can just see as you move around the space. Both Berlin and Johannesburg have a sort of squatter culture in certain areas of the city, and both are a response to crises of the past. So respectively, Western and Soviet occupation and partitioning following World War II and the, the breakdown of apartheid in South Africa, right? But how they take shape over the course of the recent history of each city is distinct. In Berlin, the, the anti-capitalist sentiment carries over from the Soviets who occupy East Berlin. And so squatters very purposefully don't claim to own the spaces that they're occupying. In Johannesburg, squatters were essentially gangs that appropriated abandoned buildings and then sought rent from their black market, quote unquote, ownership of these buildings and properties. Why is it this way? What is it about the culture, history, geography, or politics of these cities that has resulted in these very different approaches to property and built spaces in these two cities? Yeah. So I talk about this a lot, a lot in the book, and I'm not a historian, so I want to be very careful about proclaiming what it's because. I can interpret the landscape and the history up to a point, but I do want to flag that it's just my interpretation and you know and I and I'm not a professional historian um, but it seems to me very strongly so two things one is it's important to remember that the division between West and East Berlin as it was viewed like by Americans was this division between the good guys and the evil guys but that is not how it was viewed on the ground in Berlin itself if you're over 31, and you're in Berlin, then you grew up in an era where both East and West Berlin, um, so that, that's actually a slightly separate point. A slightly separate point is this is not ancient history, right? When you're talking to middle-aged adults, even ones who are quite young in Berlin, you're talking to people who grew up in a divided Berlin. And when Berlin was divided, um, it was not a matter of everybody in West Berlin was free and happy and everybody in East Berlin was miserable and oppressed. Both West Berliners and East Berliners felt very oppressed by the division. And the division that really was salient to them, and again, here, this is where this is my interpretation, and I want to be careful because other historians might have other interpretations. But from going through, from talking to people and through, from going through archives and so on, my sense is, the division that was really oppressive to them was um, the way that they had lack of mobility and lack of opportunity because they were in these constrained environments. It was not that one economic system was seen as the evil oppressor and one economic system was seen as the liberating one. People who were in West Berlin under capitalism felt incredibly claustrophobic because they were this, in this little walled off area surrounded by alien territory. They had no freedom of movement. 
Um, and people who were in East Berlin also felt oppressed by the surveillance and by the lack of mobility. But surveillance and lack of mobility were much more of an issue than capitalism or communism, as far as I can tell. Um, so when the wall came down, what people wanted was not to be told where they could go and where they could be. <laughs> that was a much more salient thing for them. Um, and so I think that um, now it's not so much that like there's a direct line from Soviet influence to people hating capitalism, but capitalists come in, buy up Berlin property, kick people out of buildings, redevelop those buildings and force them out and displace them. And so now capitalism feels like the force that is telling people where they can go and where they can be. Capitalism is what feels like the foreign colonizing force that is taking over people's spaces, right? Because the city is, you know, it's, it's this fantastic city, which is relatively undervalued compared to comparable cities worldwide and foreign investors are obsessed with it and they're trying to just consume it and eat it up and redevelop it. And so all of these people who live in these beautiful old buildings or who have squatted these abandoned factories or these abandoned tenement buildings are suddenly being forced out of their homes or restricted in terms of where they can go by capitalist forces. So I think it's not so much like we hate capitalism. It's turned into we hate capitalism, but it's we hate capitalism because we hate displacement and we hate surveillance and we hate being forced into um, losing our territories and being told where we can be and where we can't be. Um, and that, the fact that they rebel so strongly against that, that is left over from the Cold War is my interpretation of it, is the fact that you know they've had enough of foreign powers coming in and claiming and redefining and re-signifying their space and controlling where they go in their space. And at the moment, that's capitalist foreign powers. It could have been communist foreign powers and there would still be resentment. Um, but the real enemies are things like gentrification and restrictions on mobility and closed borders. Those are the real enemies. So I asked a question about exactly what we mean by ownership. One sense of ownership is the capitalist sense, according to which one can exploit what one owns for a profit or seek rent merely for owning something. Another non-capitalist sense is that one has domain or control over what happens on one's land or in one's space or what happens with one's tools or other objects one owns. We might think that these sorts of ownership dissolve into capitalist ownership more or less inevitably, but that is a sort of question for a different day. For, for now, let's just note that if a group sort of takes control over and responsibility for, say, an apartment that they're squatting in, then in some sense they seem to own that apartment. What's really the difference between what they're doing and ownership, you know, maybe in a sort of capitalist sense? That's a fair question. I think the word ownership can mean a lot of different things. Um, I think they very much are interested in making spaces into their territory um, and places that are the settings of their own self-determination. 
um, if I can put it that way, places where they can express their agency as they want to express it and live the way that they want to live. And one of the ways that they do this is through um, what's sometimes talked about as an ethic of reclaiming and repairing. So they'll take over buildings that are almost uninhabitable and make them habitable. And by putting their labor into them and making them distinctive and and, and their own in that sense, Right? It's a very old-fashioned sense of ownership in that sense. They've just invested their labor into this external thing, and so it becomes an expression of their agency and their self-determination, and it's theirs in that sense. A lot of these buildings have been restored in really creative, quirky, beautiful ways that are very unusual, and that's become a form of self-expression and self-determination. So there's definitely a kind of ownership, but it's just not the kind of ownership that um, can be thought of in terms of property rights and the ability to commodify and sell the thing. Um, There's huge resentment in Berlin against any sort of landlord culture, right? Um, And and, uh, so people are making these things their own, but their own in the sense that they are going to live in them and have them as an extension of their own bodies and their own agency and their own subjectivity, not in the sense that they now own a thing which they can sell or, or rent out. I get a little bit overly, I mean, I, my, my friends who are actual permanent residents in Berlin, I think, laugh a little bit at just how, um, just how much I utopianize it. I know it's not a perfect place and all of these things have their other side and so on. But from a North American point of view, it really is a kind of a beautifully idealistic and utopian way of relating to the space around you that I haven't seen anywhere else. And why was Johannesburg such a pro-capitalist city? Like what, what made that different? Well, like I said, I think it's partly because people were just, it was explicitly racialized who had access to that and who didn't. So it felt like a newfound, well, not just felt like it was a newfound right for the non-white population to have access to ownership. And so that felt like something that they weren't about to turn. You know, it's all very well to give ownership rights away once you've already had them. But if you've been treated as somebody who doesn't even have the right to have ownership in the first place, then when you have access to that right, you're going to value it in a different way. I also think that this is a, a less philosophically interesting sort of macro explanation. I think the fact that under apartheid, um, there was an international boycott of South Africa and a lot of the foreign companies pulled out and abandoned it. That meant that when apartheid ended um, and those companies came back in, that was seen as a hopeful thing and about economic rebirth and rejuvenation. So the existence of like foreign multinational companies in Johannesburg has almost the exact opposite significance that it has in Berlin. In Berlin, it's heavily resented. In Johannesburg, it's seen as a sign of Um, economic and moral regeneration and rebirth that they are now, you know, on the international scene in the sense. In fact, there's this amazing um, mural in um, Constitution Hill, which is one of the spaces I write about in the book, which is where the Supreme Court is, um, holds its sessions. Um, They have this triptych of murals, one representing apartheid, one representing the end of apartheid, and one representing democracy and post-apartheid. And they're incredible murals in many ways. But um, the democracy and post-apartheid one, you know, as you can imagine for a public building like a Supreme Court, is this very starry-eyed, idealistic portrayal of the uh, nation of South Africa. And it's got all these international brands on it. 
there's like the Kodak logo and I don't even remember which other logos, but all these international brand logos are like plastered onto the piece of art to represent the freedom and rebirth of South Africa on the world stage. So, I mean, I think that their attachment to being, you know, um, a neoliberal capitalist nation runs pretty deep and is understandable given some of the history of the country. I mean, everything is privatized in South Africa. It's amazing. Like you can buy electricity by going down to the corner shop and like buying a little private bundle of electricity, like codes that you can use to get electricity. You can buy cell phone minutes on the corner. You can just like buy anything that there is to buy. Um, Or I should say anything that even if, you didn't think it was a thing to buy. <laughs> you can buy it in South Africa. Everything is for sale and everything is purchasable. And that runs really deep into the culture. It's kind of amazing. The, the relationship to space in Johannesburg is super interesting. Um, it's really a sign of self-realization and security and achievement in South Africa when you can lock off a piece of space for yourself. So I've never been in a place that has nearly that many gates and walls and gated communities and security checkpoints. It's really deeply associated with being free and being middle class that not only that you own a bit of space, but that that Mm -hmm. bit of space is, is cut off from the outside. And so the whole landscape is interestingly broken up by just all of these walls and gates and so forth. When you walk down residential streets, you can't even see the houses because everything is closed off. Um, So that, um, I mean, it's a great example for my book because that seemingly abstract ideology has made its way into the physical material environment in the super real way, right? So back during apartheid, you had things divided up by the government top down. um, And when they got rid of that top down imposition, rather than rejecting the idea of dividing up space, they thought, well, the good free way to divide up space is if every individual gets to do it for themselves and have agency over their own little bit of of dividing, right? So it's bottom-up division rather than top-down division. But they didn't reject the idea of dividing up space. Whereas in Berlin, that idea, you know, the whole idea of walls and gates and anything that blocks mobility is this very negative idea in Berlin. Um, but but I also don't want to say only negative things about Johannesburg because Johannesburg is an amazing city and there's a lot about it that's very positive, including the fact that, you know, it's a very young democracy and it is just um, absolutely filled with people's excitement at the fact still, like it's 25 years later now or whatever it is, 27 years later now, um, people are still just like absolutely excited at the fact that they are not under apartheid. So there's this um, just like absolutely energetic outpouring of creative energy and um, excitement at mobility and excitement at the, at the fact that living in something like a freeway is possible. So it's an extremely optimistic culture in many ways.
it's such a complicated place. I, I'm, I'm having trouble deciding what to say about it because it's just so interestingly fascinating. I mean, another thing that we haven't talked about at all in Johannesburg yet is that um, the city is, it's extremely dangerous. It is objectively extremely dangerous. Like I witnessed all kinds of things there that convinced me that it is objectively extremely dangerous. However, more interesting than the fact that it's objectively dangerous, and this comes back to what I was saying earlier on about perceptions of order and disorder and so on, is that people who live there are really strongly identified with the idea that they're living in a dangerous place and that they have the skills and the knowledge to know how to deal with that. Right. So coping with danger and living with danger and sort of facing down danger and overcoming it is part of the ideology and the lived bodily experience of being in Johannesburg in this really fascinating way. So just two cute little examples. Well, one of them's cute, one of them's less cute. The uncute one is that um, when you're in Johannesburg, you see often the statistic that it has the highest murder rate in the world. I could not confirm this by any metric. I looked at so many metrics and I do not think it has the highest murder rate in the world. So it's fascinating that this is part of their sort of almost not proud self-conception, but it's like integral to their self-conception, even though it's not really statistically reliable. But also you can buy these um, jugs and mugs for tourists in Johannesburg that say, um, drink Johannesburg water, it's the safest thing in the city. <laughs> so they're like monetizing and commodifying the danger of the city on these. I mean, it sort of combines everything Johannesburg at lunch, right? The idea that they turn this into a commodifiable product and they're actually like selling the danger as a tourist attraction is just super fascinating to me. But, you know, um, I gotta say, it makes it exciting to be there. Like, there's something fun about it. Everybody feels like they're living on the edge all the time and that they're doing something very empowering and brave by being out in the city in this fascinating way. And it's an extraordinarily um, creative city. I feel like a lot of the um, creativity and potentiality of the city was just crushed out of it by apartheid for decades. And so now there's just this like renaissance of creativity and everywhere you go, there are artists and there are musicians and there are people who have unbelievably cool fashion and there is, you know, music pouring out of the storefronts and so forth. So, I mean, it's, it's a very, very complicated place and I had a very vexed relationship to it, but there are a lot of ways in which it's exceptionally cool. Okay, so we have these two repurposed cities. Berlin gets repurposed again and again, but most recently after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the uniting of effectively two cities into one city and a corresponding shift in culture and government and politics. That moment in history... Mr. Gorbachev, teared down this wall. ...ushered in or at least marked a new era and a new reality for the citizens of Berlin... I might be getting this a bit wrong here, but my sense of what happened is that the the extreme repression of the post-World War II sort of Cold War era led to a extreme resistance to any sort of repression or telling people where to be, what spaces to occupy, where to go, those kinds of things. So even 
the Western sort of capitalist West Berlin and the anti-capitalist East Berlin, both parts of Berlin experienced an enormous amount of restriction and movement. And so now the current inhabitants of the city reject restriction on their movement in, in a way that runs deep into their bones. And this resulted in a sort of squatter culture that rejected private ownership rather than one that, that squatted in the hopes of coming to own the spaces they were appropriating. Johannesburg alternatively saw the fall of apartheid and with it the fall of a profoundly unequal system of rights to ownership. The black population gained the right to private ownership and to the monetization of resources like land, space, and so on. Once they got access to these rights, they hung on more fiercely than others with the right to private ownership and rent-seeking. As a result, a communal or anarchist notion of communal property of the like couldn't take hold in the cultural soil of South Africa, at least couldn't as easily. So that's more or less the sort of concrete meat of the book, the focus on these two concrete particular cities and the ways in which their recent past has created different relationships between the inhabitants of spaces throughout the city and the spaces themselves. In Johannesburg, you're far more likely to see people claiming ownership over space and then seeking rent off of it. In Berlin, you're more likely to see sort of anarchist collective squatting in vacant buildings and claiming a sort of non-capitalistic non ownership over it. But if I get to talk with a philosopher about cities, feels like I need to ask them about gentrification, right? Certainly one of the most pressing issues facing the modern city is what we might consider the, the sort of the opposite of white flight, when white middle class and upper class people fled to the suburbs. The opposite is sort of happening now where historically working class neighborhoods are, of color are being invaded by primarily young, white, somewhat affluent people who are changing the landscape in appropriative and often dangerous ways. Yeah, so, I mean, gentrification is obviously this huge political topic when it comes to cities. I, what I really didn't want to do is just try to write some big summary of or theory of gentrification because it's too big of a topic and there's tons of those out there. And, you know, ultimately, um, I'm not an economist. I'm kind of a geographer. I'm not a historian. So there were limits to how much I could give a kind of overall theory of gentrification. So I decided that my interest in gentrification for the purposes of this book was very specific. And it's exactly in keeping with the theme that I told you at the beginning. So what I wanted to know was how does it actually impact people's embodied agency to find themselves in a neighborhood that is gentrifying? What is the impact on how we actually like move our body through space and experience the world of being in a gentrifying neighborhood? And then conversely, because my thesis always goes in both directions, how do people who are in a gentrifying neighborhood, both the gentrifiers and the ones who are being pushed out, how do they try to um, make territory for themselves in that neighborhood? How do they um, work with the space and creatively retool the space? Because part of what's going on during gentrification, which is why it interested me for the purposes of the book, is there's a 
territory war going on, right? There's different groups of people for whom this area is home or should be home or is a contested home. And these groups are overlapping with one another. And so they're trying to turn the neighborhood into different kinds of territories simultaneously. And so I was interested in looking at, again, both directions, like what is it like to be an agent in the middle of that kind of territory war? And then conversely, what are the actual things that we do with our bodies and spaces to try to establish a territory and give them give the neighborhood a meaning? Um, again, from the perspective of the gentrifiers and from the perspective of the people who are being um, pushed out of the neighborhood. And um, one of the main uh, theses that I developed in the gentrification part of the book is that um, there's a kind of displacement that happens in gentrifying neighborhoods, even when people stay. So there are lots of kinds of displacement that go along with gentrification, right? There's there's economic displacement where people have to move because they just can't afford to stay in the neighborhood anymore. There's physical displacement where low-income housing is actually literally physically destroyed, and so people lose their homes in a physical sense and have to live somewhere else. Those are two standard kinds of displacement, and they both involve people who used to live in the neighborhood, not living in the neighborhood anymore. But I got really interested in what I called phenomenological displacement, which is where you're still in the neighborhood, but that neighborhood ceases to be home for you. It ceases to meet your needs or be a territory that you can actually effectively be an agent within. And so there's um, a massive hit against your agency because the neighborhood stops suiting you or being a place that you can claim as your own. And so what I try to do in the gentrification chapter is really dig into that phenomenon. And I do it mostly through a case study of one particular neighborhood in Washington, D.C., which has gentrified a lot, but it's it's an unusual neighborhood in many ways. One of the ways it's unusual is that there have been a lot of policies put in place to try to keep economic and physical displacement from happening. So they protected a lot of affordable and low income housing in the neighborhood and kept it from being removed or from that and kept the prices from rising. Um, they built a lot of things that are accessible in the neighborhood to people of different income levels. Like there's a target there and other sort of, you know, cheap, accessible, useful stuff that you could use even if you're low income. Lots of policies were put in place to try to avoid displacement as this neighborhood gentrified. And so it's a nice case study because a lot of the low-income folks who were there to start with are still physically there. There's a huge homeless population, for instance. Um, and what I wanted to see was how are those people phenomenologically displaced even though they are not physically or economically displaced, they're not literally out someplace else. How do, how do they find themselves in a really concrete sense, out of place, unable to use their bodies in a way that feels natural to them, unable to hang out in public space anymore without being seen as a threat, without being seen as disorderly, unable to claim parts of the neighborhood for themselves. And that's the kind of gentrification that I really dug into in this chapter. Again, my focus in the entire book is on the very, very materially concrete minutiae of everyday life. If there's one thing that I want people to get out of the book, it's that those tiny concrete minutiae are important, right? So 
everything from kind of obvious stuff like taking the public bathrooms out of the parks so people can't be in the parks long term anymore um, to um, things like uh, the neighborhood surveilling of the streets. So that I mean, one of the things that I got obsessed with was the fact that um, people kept calling the cops on black and brown folks who would drink on the street in front of their homes, even though that was happening directly next to a restaurant with a patio where white and middle class people were out on that very same sidewalk drinking. So what's the difference between the people drinking in front of their home and people drinking on the patio? Well, there's a wall around the patio, right? And you're paying money to do that drinking and you're white. <laughs> and so then that becomes not only not a problem, but seen as like neighborhood character, right? This comes back to what I was saying before about what's seen as orderly, what's seen as disorderly. They're doing exactly the same thing on the same block, right? But one of them is seen as orderly and in fact as like charming and character filled and hip. And this is why this, you know, this, this block got named by the New York Times as one of the hippest blocks in the United States, right? So it's like it's it's valued. And then right next door, that very same activity is being policed by cops and surveyed. But the people who were drinking in front of their house and not on the patio, they've been drinking in front of their house for 40 years. Right. This is not a thing they're suddenly doing to be transgressive. This is how they've been hanging out for decades. So this very same activity that in the same neighborhood used to be seen as part of the social order and as normal has now become a disorderly threat to the social order, right? And, and is something that they can't do without being at risk of being harassed by police, or even if the police don't come, just being you know, subject to hostile glares and just being generally made to feel uncomfortable, right? So they're doing the same thing with their body in the same place, but the neighborhood around them has changed so that suddenly that activity has become a transgressive disorderly activity, which is out of place. And so this, this is um, a beautiful example for me of phenomenological displacement, right? They lost the at-homeness and comfort of that activity without their bodies or their spaces right around them changing at all. Um, and just that beautiful contrast between the patio and what's right next to the patio, I thought was super powerful. So, I mean, so much work was done to keep these folks in the neighborhood, but there's nothing they can do in the neighborhood now, right? Like they're there, yes, but they've been shut out of the public spaces. They've been shut out of the private privatized spaces and they're just sort of at a loss. And now there's like community meetings trying to figure out what to do about the problem that people are loitering on the street. But that problem has been produced by gentrification. It's not reflected by, you know, it's, it's, it's not that now that there's gentrification, now we care about this problematic behavior. The problematicness of the behavior is itself a byproduct of gentrification. Another topic really worth reflecting on if we're going to talk about cities and spaces and the ways that bodies and embodied subjects make up their spaces and are in turn influenced by those spaces is disability, especially quote-unquote physical disability. To what extent are we obligated or should we be transforming our cities to make space for or provide access for members of our community that otherwise might not have access to all spaces in a city, for instance? 
if we didn't physically transform the city in some way or another. There are some interesting and thorny issues here, but what, how would you summarize your, your thoughts on disability and access and public space? Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I talk about this a lot, um, especially in the last chapter when I talk about what it means to have a right to the city, which is a phrase that geographers use a lot, but that I think from a philosopher's point of view is a kind of an ambiguous and underdefined term, right? Like what does the right to the city mean? Does it mean we have a right to do whatever we want in any single space in the city that we could possibly go? Well, clearly not, right? That's much too strong. Um, does it mean you just have the right to not be kicked out of the city? Well, that's clearly much too weak, right? So it's something stronger than the mere right to be physically contained in the city and something much weaker than you have access to every space and every space is yours. So what does it mean? So I'm trying to work with that in the, in the last chapter, which is the most political of the chapters. Um, and one of the things I talk about is how our spaces are, for the most part, just built to make certain kinds of bodies at home and not other kinds of bodies. And so we can't really just um, sort of top down, you know, the notion of universal design is a very vexed one. And I think that ultimately it's a notion that doesn't work. It's not like we can top down in some planning room somewhere, say, well, let's build spaces that every kind of body can use because we can't, you know, first of all, different kinds of bodies needs conflict with one another. Second of all, there's sort of a standpoint epistemology point there where we can't project ourselves into different kinds of bodies and know exactly what every kind of body needs. So one of the things that I think is super important is to build a city where different kinds of bodies have enough spatial agency that they get to build their own spaces. So not every space in the city is going to suit every kind of body, but every kind of every kind of person with every kind of body ought to have enough spatial agency and community and support from the city that they can make some of the spaces their own and suited to them in important ways. And some of the examples that um, are powerful for me, um, I'm very interested, this, this is not about um, ability yet, but I'm very interested in how we um, don't really give any usable space over to adolescents. Um, so young bodies are among the bodies that just don't have space in the city. And like, that's not to say that the whole city should be remade into a giant skateboard park, <laughs> but um, we need to like um, make it possible for there to be public spaces and different kinds of spaces that are suited to adolescents and not controlled by adults. And we need to give adolescents enough spatial agency that they can make their own spaces and not always feel like they're perched unwanted in other people's spaces. Um, but when it comes to disabled bodies and fat bodies, it's just very clear that we literally physically have not built spaces that make it comfortable for those bodies, right? Um, one point that I read that really stuck out at me was that um, supermarkets have no place to sit. There's no benches in supermarkets. So if you don't have the mobility to make your way through the whole hour or whatever it is it takes you to do your grocery shopping standing on your feet, then you can't do your own grocery shopping, which produces more disability than there was before, right? So making um, spaces that accommodate different bodies is, I think, um, 
partly a task for city planners, but is partly a matter of letting people who actually have those different bodies have hands in crafting those spaces. Another beautiful example is, um, I, I heard this, I talk about this in the book, I heard this wonderful lecture by um, uh, somebody who specializes in deaf architecture. He's the head architect for Gallaudet University. Um, and he pointed out that one thing that people don't think about, like when they built Gallaudet University, which in case your listeners don't know, is a, is a um, university entirely for deaf people in, here in Washington, D.C., but the people who designed it, for the most part, were not deaf, and they wanted it to look like a mini Ivy League campus. So it has very traditional campus architecture with that kind of stone cramped kind of feeling to it. Um, and this deaf architect, well, he's not deaf, but architect for the deaf, pointed out that one thing that deaf people need is very wide hallways, because if they have to walk single file down a hallway, they can't talk to one another. So... I mean, it's just such an obvious point when you think about it, but they need to be able to walk side by side comfortably. Otherwise, they have to completely cease all conversation the entire time they're moving through the space. So creating a space with wide hallways and good lighting is going to be deaf friendly in a way that the original designers of the university who were not trying to be exclusionary, it just never occurred to them. Right. Um, so I. In general, I think we have to rebuild our cities and rebuild our spaces to accommodate more bodies. But the two take-homes that I want to pull out of that are not every space is going to accommodate every body. So we need a range of spaces for different. You also don't want to like restrict one kind of body just to one space. Every kind of body should have a variety of spaces, but they're never going to have all the spaces. But they should have workspaces. They should have play spaces. They should have social spaces. They should have home spaces. They should have the full range of spaces that people need in order to live a flourishing life, art spaces. So that's one point. And then the other point is, I don't think we're ever going to be able to do that entirely through top-down planning. We need to include the people who actually have those bodies and allow a kind of a bottom-up remaking of space to happen. So planning has to be flexible enough to let people who live in a city make their own space. So just to pull this back to the right to the city, which is where I started, because I kind of wandered away from that theme. Um, as I interpret it, the right to the city is the right to actually inhabit that city. And inhabiting doesn't mean just legally living within or owning property inside of. Inhabiting means having spatial agency and embodied agency within that city of all of those different kinds that you need in order to live a flourishing life. So you only get to inhabit a city to really count as inhabiting a city when you have home spaces in that city, when you have play spaces in that city, when you have all those different kinds of cities and those are your territory where your body is well enough coordinated with the physical environment that your agency can express itself and you can be self-determining in those spaces. So a real right to the city with respect to body diversity is a city that lets itself be built and remade in such a way that everybody who is in it can inhabit it. And that doesn't mean everybody in it can do every single thing, but the, that inhabiting has to be fairly robust. So, Quill, what got you interested in cities? In some ways, this is a very non-standard philosophy book being the sort of thing that could serve as a, a text for the study of, of urban planning or the like. City planning and architecture and policy, I would say all three. 
Um, yeah. And I mean, one of the, so I'm now doing a master's degree in urban planning. Um, and I'm kind of a weird urban planner because I'm like the anti-urban planner because one of my big um, sort of soapboxes within urban planning is that it's easy for there to be too much of it. Because <laughs> what you want to do is enough urban planning to give people the agency that they need to plan spaces themselves and remake spaces themselves. And overplanned spaces are almost necessarily going to turn out to be A, exclusionary spaces that only work for some bodies, but B, also they, they over constrain people's agency. They can only be, when a space is too planned and too orchestrated, then you can only be in it and live in it and perceive in it in certain narrow ways. And that's very constraining to our freedom and to our agency. So um, over planning to me is like the death of a lot of cities and a lot of city neighborhoods. So I'm like the one in the planning class who's like, let's plan less <laughs> rather than more. But planning less in the right way is actually a serious art and science, right? It's not just a matter of, well, let's not have any planning and just let, you know, factories spring up right next to residences and so on. It's, it's not just like a hands-off libertarian approach to planning because then other bad things will happen. It's about planning just the right amount to make space for people to be creative agents within the spaces that you've made for them. And being a creative agent includes remaking that space itself. And I mean, I should say in this, I'm extremely inspired by Jane Jacobs. When you asked me at the beginning why I wrote this book, one thing I didn't say and should have was part of it was just reading Jane Jacobs and getting incredibly excited. Um, you know, she was not a philosopher, so she doesn't have a background philosophical story, but she has this beautiful vision of the, as I, to coin a phrase, the likely planned city that allows for this kind of creative engagement. And um, she has a beautiful vision also of the ways in which our material and built environment shapes who we are and what we do and how we act and how we see. And that was incredibly inspiring to me. So the stuff I'm saying now is pretty much stolen directly out of Jane Jacobs here at the end. So I noticed some consonants with some of my own thinking about the organic nature of all manner of systems, the, the constituents that make up the system that are in turn conditioned by, influenced by, and even defined by their roles in that system. Cities are, I don't want to say they're living things because there's a whole history of that being a really creepy metaphor, which we could also talk about. They're not living things, but they are um, organic, right? I mean, they're in process and they are constantly being remade and remaking and being remade and remaking. Um, uh, a friend of mine who's a philosopher, I should give her a shout out by name, actually. When um, Notre Dame burnt down, Notre Dame confusing with the school when Notre Dame burned down a few years ago and everybody was talking about how tragic it was um, a logician in England Sarah Uckelman wrote this beautiful little response that went viral talking about how this wasn't the destruction of something static that being partially destroyed and then being rebuilt was just part of how buildings live their lives and part of how the built environment lives its life. It was super inspiring. And I just think that, you know, trying to design the perfect thing and then hold it in place is just a losing strategy for creating a living, breathing city, a, you know, a city that is going to have dynamism to it and is going to have life to it is going to have to be one that's constantly being remade as it goes. 
as the subjectivity within it changes. I think that's a great place to end it. We talked a little bit about homelessness, but I wanted to reserve this for an episode more focused on, on homelessness for maybe the future. I could see episodes on gentrification, homelessness, and disability incorporating insights from Kukla in the future if I ever get around to making those episodes. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. Thank you for your support and keeping Reductio online as I figure my life out. Cheers, especially to our loyal Patreon supporters. Link in the show notes if you want to join them for like a dollar a month. I'm Andrew Lavin, and this has been a production of Inverted Spectrum Media. Bye for now. Bye for now.